You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 3rd of February 2023 on Monocle 24. The EU gently friendzones Ukraine. Pope Francis takes a message of peace and reconciliation somewhere it is self-evidently needed. And can we repurpose going to gigs as an act of civic selflessness? I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Steve Crawshaw, Rebecca Tinsley, Paige Reynolds and Sophie Monaghan-Coombs will discuss all the day's stuff. Plus we'll have Henry Rees Sheridan's latest letter from New York City. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. You're listening to the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller. And we will start in Kiev and this week's major diplomatic set piece, i.e. the summit between several senior EU panjandrums and the government of Ukraine. The rhetoric has been of unconditional support, an arguably overexcited European Council President Charles Michel declaring Ukraine is the EU, the EU is Ukraine. The reality has been more circumspect. Ukraine's declared hopes of joining the EU within two years are being gen- rebuffed as too optimistic by half, especially in the present suboptimal circumstances. Well, I'm joined with more from Kiev by Steve Crawshaw, a former Russia and Eastern Europe editor at The Independent, now writing a book on war crimes and international justice. Um, Steve, we will come to that area of your interest shortly, but first of all, to the summit, do there appear to be any actual outcomes? I guess there are outcomes. You, you kind of you summed it up well in your introduction. There's lots of declarations of love, basically. And yes, of course, membership isn't going to happen soon. That was never going to happen. But to be honest, we didn't really have the European Union talking with that kind of love. He, Zelensky, and indeed Ukraine more, more generally needs those strong signals. And it was very much today lots of signals of, of, of mutual love. There were some practical things, but those were much more smaller. And, and, and some of those sounded really very, very small indeed, to be honest. So I think it is that sense of, yes, we do care about you. Yes, we stand behind you. Um, and and I'm, I'm guessing that uh, Kiev will be reasonably happy with having got that out of the meeting. Uh, and is everybody just pretending that Zelensky never suggested this within two years thing? I think, I mean, that's what you kind of do. It, it, it's just bargaining, isn't it? We mm. need this now. Well, we'll get to it as soon as we possibly can. Um, I think it would be extraordinary if he had genuinely ever believed it. Um, and But it's the kind of thing that you say in order to give that urgency, which, of course, is what he's been doing throughout. He's always said... And that's been true of the um, uh, various arms that have been uh, received, the weapons weaponry that's been received, just saying, well, thanks very much, but that what we actually needed with this. And he's not wrong uh, to always be upping the ante in that kind of way. But I would say that's a fairly, that's been a fairly steady drumbeat throughout. I mean, President Zelensky will, of course, have been pleased by this announcement earlier this week of Ursula von der Leyen's that there will be a a centre for prosecution of crimes of aggression uh, in Ukraine to be set up in The Hague. What do we know about that? Do we assume that this will operate on a similar basis to tribunals for various portions of the former Yugoslavia, Rwanda, etc.? Yeah, it, it's very confused. So as you mentioned in your introduction, that, that one of the reasons that I'm here in Kiev now is because of a book I'm writing 
writing on, on, on war crimes and international justice. So that whole theme has been one that I've been having with many with Ukrainian officials here, with lawyers here, with human rights organizations. Um, and despite having all the reading I'd done before and all the conversations I've had now, confusion still continues to reign, to be honest, including with those right in the middle of what's happening. So the Crimes of Gaston Tribunal, um, which started as an idea from the British lawyer Philippe Sands, but was picked up enthusiastically by the Ukrainians quite early on last year, a lot of initial scepticism from many other foreign governments um, initially. Um, and now basically people have bought into that. And that's been increasing the case in the past couple of months, in, in the past couple of weeks. And so this announcement that, as you mentioned, that Ursula von der Leyen made now, is kind of like the icing on the cake of the European Union saying, yes, we like it. Um, the Dutch government had earlier said it could be in The Hague, but now it's kind of with the European Union's blessing. And this tribunal will be different from anything we've seen before, that it goes specifically to the crime of aggression, which for complicated reasons can't at this moment be handled by the International Criminal Court. But the unspoken bit of that is that it's not able to deal with all the tens of thousands um, of the the war crimes, crimes against humanity, and even potentially genocide. The word genocide is now being used more than it has been. So yes, that's a really important signal as well. And yes, they hope that will, if you like, put the wind up um, the Russians a bit. But how that is actually created and approved is still a bit of question marks. I think almost certainly the consensus here in Kiev from those I've been talking to is that that will need to go to New York in some shape or form to bless. So the General Assembly, for example, the UN General Assembly would somehow bless that, but hand it over to regional bodies, European Union, and perhaps crucially the Council of Europe. The Council of Europe, which is not a body that most people focus on very much usually, but it is important because it has traditionally included Russia as part of the broader region. So that's definitely now looking way more likely than it did a couple of months ago. And that was an important signal being sent. But a lot of question marks of exactly how it works out. And what's your sense of how sophisticated, how assiduous Ukraine's current endeavours in tracking, collecting, collating evidence for war crimes is? I mean, this is a difficult enough thing to do once a conflict is concluded. It is presumably much the more so while the conflict is ongoing. Yeah, it's a a good and an important question. I think as assiduous as they can be, I was kind of impressed by the amount of thinking that's going into it. But to be honest, the Ukrainian authorities themselves will privately, to some extent, I think publicly, um, admit that their capacity is limited. But also what you hear from the international lawyers as well as from the Ukrainians is like, we are grown-ups. We've been dealing with this conflict for a long time. They are putting a lot of effort. They know that good investigation and good accountability principles, that will be good, obviously, for those who have uh, suffered and for survivors and victims and so on. That's really important. Um, But it will also be good for how Ukraine looks. So at the moment they are working very closely with different international bodies and different international lawyers who are based here and many of those you know very very smart ukrainian lawyers um working with that have the prosecution and investigative things been great until now 
Not necessarily, but I think there's been a steep learning curve on that because, of course, it's not just about the individual case of what happened in this particular thing, this particular shell, this particular person who was killed, but it's seeing the pattern of those things. And that's something that they haven't had to deal with in the same way before, but which would be incredibly important for what's called command responsibility. In other words, pushing it up the scale to the brigadiers, the generals, and at some point, even the ministers um, and, and, and the government itself who are responsible for what's happening. Steve Croshaw, thank you for joining us. You're listening to The Daily on Monocle 24. Pope Francis has arrived in South Sudan on the second and final stop of his current African tour. As the Pope prepared to depart from the Democratic Republic of Congo with a view to spreading the gospel, re-peace and reconciliation, South Sudan seemed to go out of its way to demonstrate how badly such a message was needed. 27 people were killed in the central Equatoria state in what appears to have been a battle between militia members and cattle herders. Well, I'm joined now by Rebecca Tinsley, a journalist and human rights activist who has worked in Sudan and South South Sudan extensively. Um, Rebecca, first of all, to yesterday's incident, as far as uh, we can ascertain what actually happened, how common is that sort of violence or violence of that scale in South Sudan now? It's tragically common. Um, and from what I understand, it wasn't so much a battle. It was unarmed civilians being dragged out of their homes and executed um, by armed um, people from the Dinka uh, tribe, uh, ethnic group. Um, They are the latest casualties um, in this long-running nightmare um, that has gripped this country since independence in 2011. And the death toll so far is 400,000 people dead out of a a population of 12 million, which is enormous. Um, And there is no sign that the people running South Sudan are in the slightest bit concerned about this this terrible toll on on civilians. Um, Pope Francis is travelling with the Archbishop of Canterbury and the moderator of the Church of Scotland. This is uh, clearly a very deliberately uh, ecumenical enterprise. Between the three of them, how much clout do they carry in South Sudan? I think I think a lot, because from my experience, the only bit of civil society that is actually organised and useful Um, Indeed, the only useful bit of society, the only useful institutions in South Sudan are the church. And they have been, I mean, amazingly brave people at a local level trying to do peace and reconciliation work. Um, And the the reason that uh, the Holy Father and the other two clerics have gone there is not so much, I think, to spread any any message of um, peace and love, but to try to name and shame uh, the two leaders uh, who have the fate of this country, the world's newest country, in their hands. And just for context, back in 2019, when both the president and vice president of South Sudan visited Rome, the Pope actually got down on his knees and kissed their feet. And it was an act of humbling himself, but trying to shame them. And it was well understood throughout South Sudan, just what he was doing. He was trying to say, you know, you you guys, <laughs> you big men with your vast whale-sized egos, 
need to actually concentrate on on the people rather than um, enriching yourselves. But but has there been any hint that that message has been received and or understood by those two gentlemen? Certainly not, and it won't <laughs> be as long as the international community keeps um, giving them aid and not demanding results. Um, America gives them about a billion dollars a year, and the UK, until recently, was giving South, the South Sudan government $220 million pounds a year. That has now thankfully dropped a little bit. But frankly, they shouldn't be giving them anything because all of this money is stolen. This is a, a violent kleptocratic state. And that money, as soon as it arrives, is going to be pocketed by people or probably sent to uh, foreign bank accounts. Um, and if they do, if they do have uh, any interest in, in projects that benefit people, here, here's one of their big ideas. Uh, the president of, of South Sudan wanted to use foreign aid to create new cities in South Sudan that were shaped like animals, so that if you flew over them, you would look down and say, oh, look, there's a city that looks like a rhino. And in the meantime, um, a girl, an average, say, the average 16-year-old girl in South Sudan is more likely to die in childbirth than she is to actually finish primary school. That's that's how poor it is. So from the point of view uh, of Pope Francis, though, and his, his two ecumenical sidekicks on this particular tour, what would be a definition of success for them? Um, well, I, I from what I gather, what the Pope actually wanted to do was to call on President Salva Kiir and Vice President Rick Machar to resign. Um, and he's probably been talked out of that, but... From, from what I gather, he, he totally gets the number of these guys. He knows that, that all the violence is not about ideology. It is, it, is, it is not even about ethnicity. It's about two men who both want to run a country, um, who, who have sort of, they've stirred up their ethnic base. So I think, I think um, you know, what Pope Francis would be, you know, better doing would be trying to support civil society, which he is doing. Uh, he would be demanding that um, foreign donors, i.e. America, the European Union, and Britain, that instead of just handing over the money, that we attach, um, uh, we, we say there must be clean elections, there must be a free press, and you know there must be anti-money laundering, um, and that we should be, attaching consequences um, if if the promises, the sort of years of promises aren't fulfilled. Uh, and those consequences should be personally um, targeted smart sanctions on the aforementioned President Salva Kiir and Vice President Rick Machar. Rebecca Tinsley, thank you very much for joining us. You're listening to The Daily on Monocle 24. You're listening to The Daily with me, Andrew Muller. This week is, or given that it's Friday, has been Independent Venue Week, the 10th annual celebration of independent music and arts venues and the people who operate them. The last few years have been especially rough on such establishments, what with a pandemic which emptied rooms more effectively than most support acts, and an energy crisis which has spiked operating costs and made gig-goers more reluctant to spend money on riotously overpriced drinks. I'm joined with more on this by Sophie 
Monaghan Coombs, producer of Monocle on Culture, and by Monocle producer Paige Reynolds, who in her other life headlined an independent venue as recently as Tuesday. Um, Paige, first of all, tell us about that. In what guise were you headlining? <laughs> Where were you headlining at? And talk to us a bit about the music that will be playing this show out, and I promise our listeners that is well worth sticking around for. Um... A little bit about the night. Well, I wasn't headlining as a Monocle 24 news producer. You'll be uh, disappointed <laughs> to hear. Um, I was headlining as a singer. Um, I perform under the alias of Page B, which isn't really an alias because it is my first name and my middle name. Um, and it was an amazing night. Uh, we played at the Lexington, which is an independent venue. And as, as we were discussing, Andrew, you also know that venue because you I, used to do a little, some bits there on a Sunday. I did. It's a lovely room, the Lexington. It's, it's, it's sort of between Islington and King's Cross here in London. Yeah, exactly. And it's a really nice space. It's got a really nice pub downstairs and it's got a venue upstairs. The sound is really good, which I think is definitely something as kind of like a musician you're always looking for. A really small venue, but it's got really good sound quality because mm-hmm. it makes all the difference. Um, the capacity is about 220 um, and we sold it out which was amazing and kind of as your cue was alluding to um, just now uh, the fact that it is just really difficult to, to get people in the room to sell out nights people are a bit flaky maybe that's just a London thing maybe it's a bit of a pandemic hangover I think it's a combination of the two and things are really expensive as well in fact I was talking to a fellow Monocle 24 producer Tom Webb um, who said his favourite independent venue was Coco which is a stunning venue really mm-hmm. beautiful a lot bigger, amazing sound. But I went there recently uh, during a, a dry January spell and got a bottle of non-alcoholic beer for £6.80. Um, so you can see why some people aren't that keen to go out in the first place. And if they are going to go out, they're going to be kind of counting their pennies a little bit. But I've sort of di- diverged a little bit. But Tuesday night was amazing. And I think people were buying drinks. So that uh, was good. Genuine question, though, because I think it does pertain to the economic health of such establishments. And I also have an amount of like just flagrantly envious self-interest here as somebody who has more than once played guitar in a country band to a venue of approximately that size, but with about 215 fewer people in it. Um, what is your secret to selling to 120 tickets because all jokes aside that is no small change literally no it was I mean to be honest it was definitely um, very much a sort of one woman uh, marketing effort Um, (laughs) I think I knew that it was going to be really difficult to get people in the room and I think I knew that you can't can't just tell people that you have a gig and expect they're going to buy tickets I very much was following up with people kind of individually reminding people time and time and again Um, I had a really great support act as well so kind of strategically I was thinking about his audience and my audience and kind of being able to combine those so um, it, it, nagging and guilt tripping is I basically attest, the secret. I yeah. can attest to Paige's <laughs> persistence. <laughs> but you know what? I think you should be persistent because I do think, uh, and maybe this is less about independent venues, but just going out in London in general, I do think that people do really enjoy it when they get there, but it can be a bit like, oh, well, I live in Deptford and this is in you know Islington and those places are probably about, I don't know, five, six miles apart and it might take you an hour or so to get there. And I get that, you know, on a Tuesday night in January, maybe you're a bit like... Mm. Oh, I could just watch the TV but I think it's really important to go and populate these venues and I think that's what Independent Venue Week is about it's about saying if you don't use the venue you will lose the venue I mean there's venues that I've played um, that I've loved that have been smaller venues that have been community run that don't exist anymore Mm. and that is really sad and that is just because I think you know 
for many reasons, rising rent prices, cost of living, all of that kind of stuff. But it is also because I think people are perhaps a little bit lazy and they kind of think those places will always exist. But no, you do have to go to them and spend time in them and you actually do enjoy it when you go. Uh, Sophie, is this possibly the way forward there for Independent Venue Week to try and pitch going out on the lash as sort of actually a societal good? (laughs) Yeah, I think there is a lot of um, weight in these kind of initiatives. This is the 10th anniversary of Independent Venue Week. Um, And it has done a really good job of promoting independent venues. You know, we're having this chat now, which we wouldn't without it. But 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 the the very existence of it, like with something else like Record Store Day, does imply that there's a problem, doesn't there? They 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 wouldn't have to do that if they were absolutely confident. There's never like a petrol station week or something. Yeah, it is obviously becoming more and more important in the wake of COVID with the rising cost of energy prices. There's a lot that um, independent venues have to battle with. But there are other kind of hopeful spots for me personally. Um, Where I live in South East London, there's a collective which has raised loads of money to refurbish a former working men's club and they'll be um, reopening it as an independent um, venue at the end of this year and it will be, I think, London's first community-owned music venue. So that's a really kind of exciting and new and different prospect for keeping alive independent venues in London. I I did want to ask you both, and I'll ask you first, Sophie, if there are any particular venues in London that you are enthusiastic about and you would recommend that people go to if they are, well, if, if they are roused by this segment and think, you know what, I will do my bit to keep music live. I will go out and see some of it. Yeah, I think there's loads. I There's lots in East London I really love. Um, Moth Club, the Shacklewell Arms, um, and I quite like Earth as well in Hackney. I've also got a really soft spot for Bush Hall in Shepherd's Bush. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also wanted to give a shout out to the Riverley Ballroom, which um, is very local to where I grew up. And uh, it's got the only intact uh, dance floor from a 1950s ballroom, and it now does kind of um, cinema nights and some music nights um, and is used for lots of films. Um, The Elton John uh, video for I guess that's why they call it the blues was filmed in there so it's got some pretty uh, impressive um, historical uh, acts but um, yeah I I think that one's great as well. And Paige from the point of view of a performer are there any you would recommend because I I have myself learnt the hard way that there's, there's venues which are good to play at and venues which are less good and rather depressingly the one I always think of as a benchmark was a venue which no longer exists which used to be upstairs on Kilburn High Road where they made an absolute point of ensuring that everybody got paid that the support act got all the time they wanted to sound check etc and that everybody was just nice and I hope the fact that they went broke is not actually related to the way they tried to go about their business. For me I think in terms of the venues I've really enjoyed playing at for me it's often about the kind of crowd that that venue draws in and Mm. the sort of people that are there so I played at the Windmill in Brixton that was great that's quite a uh, an iconic venue because it's had a lot of bands that have sort of cut their teeth there, lots of like South London sort of new rock I, I and too punk have band. played the Windermill Well, Brixton. there we go. They, 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 Case they, in point. They have, a dog on, they have a dog on the roof. Yeah, exactly. Why not? So that's really cool. That's a little bit more kind of grassroots, a bit punky, but always a really good crowd there. Um, I also recently played at the Avalon Cafe in Bermondsey. Again, that was just quite a cool space. It's um, again, it's very, for me, it was very cheap to run a night there. Quite an interesting crowd. Bermondsey's not really a place you'd go to 
in mm. Leicester. There was that venue there, so it's quite nice to draw people to like a totally different part of London, although it's very hard to get to. <laughs> <laughs> and then I must say, the Lexington was amazing, and that's why I chose that venue to put on that size uh, gig because, um, in terms of the higher cost, it was like really, really reasonable. Um, and they provided a door person. There was a proper green room. It wasn't just kind of a cupboard, and it was you know actually away from everyone else, so you weren't being swarmed by people. Um, the sound engineers they provide are really, mm-hmm. really good. They're, they're that's, sort a, of that's communi- a huge, which huge is a huge thing. thing. And yeah. actually, that's pretty much the main reason because I went to see a gig there and I found out who the sound engineer was, and I was like, "Are you here all the time?" <laughs> and he was. So that was a big reason. It's a, um, always a bad sign when you come off stage with a nosebleed. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Although, yeah, I mean, my the XLR. Cable did disconnect from my mic, um, but we won't blame that on anyone. That was just me being a little bit wild. But um, but anyway, I would really recommend actually that that venue. Um, but other venues that I really love, which I want to highlight, I really love the Jazz Cafe. Mm-hmm. I think they put on really really interesting nights, and it's not just jazz. Andrew, I know you're not much of a jazz fan. <laughs> um, my friend recently put on a Led Zeppelin tribute night there, and she's got this big like raspy crazy voice and it was just like an absolutely amazing energy in that space um, and if you do like jazz um, then they're at the St Giles Church in Campbell there's a crypt where they put on jazz nights and they're always they're like six pounds and really really high quality you can sit down we love it I, I, on which subject I was going to give a shout out anyway to St Pancras Old Church uh, in King's Cross which doesn't do gigs nearly often enough but that's in that rare class of venue that it's almost worth going to for the venue regardless of who's playing it's just lovely uh, and it sounds amazing I, it's unsurprisingly I guess because churches were built for music to sound amazing in yeah yeah natural acoustics and also you get a seat there's yeah. something to be yeah. said for a venue with a seat. But I think that's such a good example of how seeing live music in a, in a venue like that feels so special. Everything I've seen mm. there has just felt like such an incredible, like unforgettable moment. And you wouldn't have that if all these independent venues keep closing as as they are uh, Paige just finally uh, we will be playing out with some of your music but before we get to that can you please tell us where people can find more of it in the likely event that they enjoy it <laughs> I always said unlikely that's what, that's what my head did just then um, so you can find me on all streaming services um, so Spotify Apple and um, you can also buy my music on Bandcamp and mm-hmm. um, if you don't know what Bandcamp is look it up it's a really easy way to literally just pay for music and the musician just gets the money straight away um, which is obviously a good way of supporting musicians Um, and it's yeah it's under page B page with an I Mm -hmm. B-E-A and my latest EP is called Goodbye Then which you can listen to all six tracks of in those places Paige Reynolds and Sophie Monaghan Coombs thank you for joining us and it's time now for our letter from New York City here is our correspondent Henry Rees Sheridan You're a snowflake And I don't mean an overly sensitive person. I mean a literal snowflake. All snowflakes are unique, but you're even uniquer. You're on a special journey. It's a journey through the frigid air. You ride the gusts of wind, swirling in an intricate dance around hundreds of thousands of others of your kind. Then you hit the ground. Your mates begin to pile up around and on top of you. Together, you're forming something extraordinary. The latest arriving snowfall in an NYC winter since 1869. The month just passed was the warmest January in the city since records began. There were zero 
accumulating snowfall reported. Temperatures were above average on all 31 days of the month. I don't mind because I find it quite annoying when it snows here. Public transport is disrupted. You slip and fall ridiculously in front of people whose respect it took you so long to earn. Dog walkers use the snow as an excuse to not pick up their dog's poop, so all the poop becomes fossilised in the snow, and then when it melts, it deposits the poop all over the pavement. I don't miss any of that, but the unusual weather is also eerie. I find that unseasonable warmth always imparts a slightly woozy, dreamlike logic to life. This seemed to be confirmed when I read this week that a pink pigeon had been found in Manhattan. A pink pigeon <clears throat> found near a park has a new home thanks to a good Samaritan and a wildlife nonprofit. Hmm, the bird was actually spotted Monday near Madison Square Park. For a brief, thrilling moment, it was thought a new species may have been discovered. But then I read past the headline. A wildlife rescue group who treated the bird concluded that it was most likely a domesticated white pigeon that had been dyed pink and released as part of a gender reveal celebration. That does for a transition into the human realm, where there have been some notable developments in New York politics this week. On Wednesday, Kathy Hochul put forward a state budget plan that reveals her most pressing concerns as governor. One of her main goals is rescuing the Metropolitan Transit Authority, the transport agency for the greater New York area. After a steep drop in subway riders during the pandemic, the authority has seen a budget gap emerge of nearly $3 billion. There are several measures in Hochul's latest budget to reduce this gap by 2025. The first two are relatively conventional. One is raising payroll taxes on downstate businesses that benefit from the transit network. And the other is calling on the city government to help out by pitching in $500 million to fund the agency. But Hochul also included a third, less conventional measure to help out the MTA. She wants to divert revenue to the agency from three casinos that are planned to be built in the New York City region in coming years. The casinos have been in the pipeline since last April, when three licenses to build them in downstate New York were authorised by lawmakers. Since then, the bids for the licenses have come in thick and fast from some of the most deep-pocketed developers in the state. One of them, Soloviev Group, has proposed what would be the first Vegas-style casino in Manhattan. The company owns an empty site near the United Nations headquarters in Midtown. It's going to team up with the casino and resort operator Mohegan to compete for one of the licenses. According to the plan, the casino itself would be mostly underground. The development would also feature a 1,200-room hotel, two residential towers and four acres of green space with a massive Ferris wheel. These kinds of amenities are typical of the kinds of bells and whistles that developers attach to real estate plans in order to win approval for developments. But Soloviev Group doesn't stop there. The company also wants to include a museum dedicated to democracy on the site. It will draw on the developers extensive private art collection, which includes giant slabs of the Berlin Wall. The MTA aren't the only ones in New York beset with financial concerns. 
George Santos, the disgraced New York representative who made up almost all of the facts about his life, continued his long descent into a new level of public disgrace. Begin with that breaking news emerging out of Washington on embattled Long Island Congressman George Santos. CBS News Jessica Moore. On Tuesday, Santos temporarily recused himself from sitting on congressional committees, and on the same day, the resignation of his long-term treasurer, a key and long-standing member of his team, was made public. This isn't going to help his case in any of the three separate investigations being pursued by local, state and federal law enforcement agencies into his campaign finances. At this stage, the only good that can come from Santos's story is the universal moral lesson that we can draw from it. And that is, don't commit massive alleged campaign fraud while making a bid for Congress based on a political persona that's entirely falsified. And even if you can't resist doing that, try not to win. That was our New York radio correspondent, Henry Reese Sheridan, and that is all for this edition of The Daily. Thanks to all our guests today, Steve Crawshaw, Rebecca Tinsley, Sophie Monaghan-Coombs, and Paige Reynolds. And playing us out is Paige Reynolds in her other guise as Paige B, that's B-E-A, available at all good streaming sites, and as she said on Bandcamp, if you want to buy it, and why wouldn't you? This is 4x4. Today's show was produced by Lillian Fawcett and researched by Andre Nikolai Pamintuan. Our sound engineer was Callum McLean. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily returns at the same time tomorrow. Thank you for listening. Sinking lower, roll through the bars on your leather sofa. I don't smoke, but here I go. Just a minute, my head's gone, my head's gone. Wait until the end of the song, breathe deep, it's done.